So we're talking about food tonight, these food laws. Um, Food has a long and storied picture in history with humanity. Food, if you if you look and think biblically even, food is it's all over the Bible. It's all the way back in the beginning after God had created the world. He set up the terms of man's obedience and following him in relation to food. Right? Think about it. He has Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, everything out there is for your good. You can eat of all of these trees out there and go and make wonderful things. Don't eat of that one tree. It's about food. So man's obedience and following God was based on food. In the very next chapter, we see that man's disobedience and distrust of God was a decision surrounding food. And so they took of it. In the very next scene in the Bible, we see Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. After they had eaten, they were ashamed of their bodies. Some of us have felt that way. And on and on and on. Now in our world, we see that we use food to exercise control over our lives. Whether that's dominance, that I can control this, or food actually has control of us. Uh, Food, we think about food um, as it relates to body image, right? That we try to eat the right things so that we can look the right way, so we can be accepted or admired by the right people. We think about food as an escape, Food is an escape because, like, let's be honest, bluebell in the stomach feels better uh, than an invisible God in our mind and heart. And so sometimes it's easier just to go numb our pain through cookie two-step or peppermint or cookies and cream or peppermint with chocolate ribbons or all the ones that we have at our house. So, like, Christmas is the best season for, cookie, for bluebell. Um, we use food for identity. Right? Do you eat organic? Oh, you don't? Huh. GMOs. Um, Oh, you eat at McDonald's? Oh, now I'm going to judge you. Food is everywhere. And it's got all sorts of associations for us. Some good, some bad, some really really hard. Um, And so in the midst of kind of that and, and these ideas about food... Look, food was a daily reality. It is a daily reality. It's complicated. We need it. Some of us hate it, and yet we still need it. Some of us are controlled by all these different things. And what we're seeing in Leviticus is that God cares about all kinds of things, all kinds of things about our life that we would think, like, maybe we have never even cared about. But God says, yeah, I care about that too. So why would God look at this thing that we rely on so immensely? What do we have going back there? Um, That we have that we rely on so immensely. Why does God say, I don't care about that? Well, he doesn't. He says he cares a lot about it. So what does he care about? What are these laws trying to tell us? What does it matter for us? Let's read and find out. Leviticus chapter 11, starting verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not, not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. 
And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the sea or in the river, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall, not, uh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall attest among the birds. You shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. You, uh, you among, uh, Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. Cheer up. Grasshoppers are good. But all other winged insects that have four feet, they are detestable to you. Skimming down to verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters, every creature that swarms on the ground, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This is God's word for us. What in the world is going on here? Uh, before I get going, let me give a shout-out to Les Newsom, a friend of mine, a pastor, who taught on this passage, and I'm using a lot of his thoughts tonight. So three categories that we're going to look at. First is, what are these laws? I just want us to set them out there, get them in front of us, and kind of break this passage apart, pull it apart, just so we can look at it and say, oh, okay, that's what that's saying. Next, what are they for? And lastly, what are they for us? So here we go. What are they for? Um, and really... I've got the, screen, the chart up there. It's on your handout as well. Before we even look at the specifics of that, I want to point out a couple things. First is that in the Bible, uh, and, and particularly in Leviticus and a lot of the Old Testament, when it employs language, when it uses language of clean and unclean, we have to understand that that does not mean sinful, unclean, and righteous, clean. Those things are not equal. They absolutely are not. So I don't know what it's going to take to pound that into our minds because we have such high associations. If you say something's unclean, and I've been guilty of this, even as, as, as a pastor and a preacher, I have just assumed that unclean always equals sinful. That is not true when we're looking at these laws. Okay, so it doesn't mean that. Um, <clears throat> another thing we need to, to understand is that um, even though... It feels and very much is kind of weird for us to read a passage like this. We need to understand that, that every culture in the history of the world has categories and has customs about things like food. Actually, we have customs about all sorts of things. Um, think about how in different parts of the world, when you walk in to someone's house, if you were to take off your, your shoes right away, that may be considered rude. 
Right? In America, that's kind of the thing. If you walk over and you take off your shoes, we're thinking what? Ugh. That could stink. That could be awful. No, put them back on. But in way more cultures than not, when you walk into someone's house, the house of a guest, you take shoes off. That is the very first thing you do. There's this, this code about it. At TU, we have codes. We have codes. You go, you go to half of a sporting event, and then you leave. <laughs> it's just what you do. Shout out to Bethany for that one. She, she gave me that. Um, it's just the way it is. We have food examples, too. There's the five-second rule. If it falls on the ground, you have five seconds to eat it. And after five seconds, you might still eat it, but it's not clean at that point. Uh, you don't double dip with chips and queso or chips and salsa. You just don't. Unless you turn the chip around, then you do it. Um, there are, uh, when we took a, a trip to spring break a few, um, a few years ago to Peru, they offered us guinea pig. Uh, some of us ate the guinea pig. Very few of us enjoyed the guinea pig. We don't eat guinea pigs in America. That's just like not part of our stuff. But we do have other things. We, we have stamp on dates that you don't eat it after this date. And if it looks this certain way, you don't eat it. Some of that is hygienic. Some of it is for all, all sorts of other reasons. Here's what I'm trying to say. That we have these kinds of laws too. These just aren't our normal laws, so we're not used to seeing them. And so just as someone would look at our kind of rules and laws about food and stuff and say, well, why do you do that? Why do you do that? And we would explain it. We're investigating what these, law, these laws are, and we're, we're saying, what do they mean? So let's explain them. Here we go. Visually uh, up on the slide right there. So there were two broad sets of, of things that are talked about in Leviticus. You had the holy things, the things that were set apart for service to God in the tabernacle, later on in the temple after it was constructed. These were, there were people that were set apart, the priests. There were things that were set apart, the utensils and the, the, um, the, the candelabra and, and the stuff that would be inside the tabernacle. All of those things were set apart for special use. And there was even food that was set apart. You had the showbread or the bread of presence, it's sometimes called, that would be there in the tabernacle. Then everything else is considered common. Everything else is considered common. Now, as you'll see right there, there's a distinction between holy and common. But then within common, oh, <laughs> those are miniature, sorry. Um, you have two different categories, clean and unclean. Now, again, what I just said, this doesn't mean sinful and, and righteous or anything like that. or good and bad. It just means clean and not clean. And there are lots of different reasons things would move from clean to unclean. Sometimes things are, would stay in unclean, such as some of these animals. Sometimes if things were unclean, they could be cleansed through a purification ceremony. Sometimes if things were common, they could be made holy through a sacrifice. So I didn't want to get in the weeds of all that, but I'm just saying that there are these categories and these kind of this taxonomy that's given by God for all of these different things in his creation. And in Leviticus 11 that we just read, animals are broken up according to these three big categories, whether they lived in the land, the water, or the air. 
And so, as it goes through there, I'm not going to re- reread all of it, but there were things that had cloven foot, which I had to look that up. I did not know what that meant. That just means like a deer, think deer, cloven foot. Right? It has, has a hoof, and then it has like the little nubby thing, foot, toe, I don't know what it is. It's like further up. That's a cloven foot that's parted. It's got two hooves on the bottom. I'm learning all kinds of stuff this week. So, and so are you. So that's a cloven foot, and it chews the cud. It eats grass. It, it does that. So there are a whole host of animals that belong to that, and I gave some examples um, that aren't given specifically in this passage, but those are examples of those animals. And then it has animals that don't do that or that don't do one of those things, and they are unclean. Okay, and then in the air, you have this, this order of things. If, um, sorry, in the water, if they had fins and scales, they're clean. And if they didn't, they were unclean. And then you have the air, you have these, um, you couldn't eat birds of prey and you couldn't eat some of these other birds. We'll talk about why in just a second. But there were other things you could eat, even some insects you could eat, which again, were gagging, but that in some way was normal for them or okay for them to do. It was clean. Another way to think about this is appropriate and inappropriate. God is telling his people, some of these things are appropriate for you to eat, and some of them are not. So that's what they are. And I wanted to get through that quick because, I mean, we could spend a long time there, but we all be falling asleep. So let's talk about what they're for. So there they are. What are they for? Throughout centuries, throughout the centuries, and I really, for, since the beginning, people who have studied the Bible in earnest have proposed all kinds of different reasons for these laws and what they might mean. Um, early on, the, the early church fathers, so like 4th through 6th century, um, they would say that, that the reason behind this is that these are they're allegorical. And so, for example, you, you couldn't eat pigs because pigs wallow around in filth and we're not to have anything to do with the filth of the world. Right, And they kind of take that and make it an object lesson. Now, there could be some okay things said there, but the problem with that is that it really can just get to be as creative as you are. And it's kind of funny sometimes to read these 3rd, 4th, 5th century um, um, church fathers, people who studied the Bible, and to see what they would say about stuff. It gets crazy, y'all, like LSD crazy. And um, so that's what some people say. Other people say that this stuff is totally arbitrary. It's totally arbitrary, and it's just random. Like, God's just throwing things in there randomly. It's like, okay, don't eat that. You can eat this and all this. But I think, and hopefully even just in seeing that chart, we see that there's more order to it than that. That there is intentionality in why some of these things are the way they are. Um, other people would say that, that these are rules for good health, like a maker's diet. If you eat only these things under the clean column, then you'll be healthy and you'll live longer and you won't get disease or, or whatever it may be. But, but then why, when Jesus came, does he say, yeah, the food laws aren't a thing anymore? Like if that's the way to eat and live forever, then we would, should think he doubles down on that. But that's not what he does. Okay, so what are they? What do we see in this? There's two things, two broad principles I think we can draw out of this. The first one is this. In these food laws, as in lots of the other laws, we see God's demand for precision and purity. That God has a demand for precision and purity. 
So as you look at all the different laws, and the food law is very much included, um, you see, and we saw just tonight, exacting detail about this stuff. I mean, even down to like certain kinds of insects, if their legs bent a certain way, you can't eat that. But if they bend this other way, you can eat that. Like if the insect hops, that's okay. If it swarms, that's not okay. If the the cloven hoof has the little stub toe that's raised up, that's cool. You eat that. If it's not, if it's more like a paw, don't eat that. It is exacting. It is precise. And God is telling us something about himself with this stuff. He's saying, I care about every detail, not just of these animals, not just of what you eat. I care about every detail of everything. I'm the God who created everything in exact precision, and you better believe I care about it. There's a scholar named, um, named Mary Douglas who, as I was reading a study on this, like all the other scholars of, of Leviticus, they look at her and like, she's, she's the man. She's the woman. Like, she's awesome. She does great work. And what she says about this stuff is that um, some animals were chosen other, over others because they reflected kind of accept, accepted standards of normalcy. They, were, they reflected accepted standards of normalcy. So you had the normal things, which we would see uh, as the clean things. And again, we don't, we don't quite understand the normal, abnormal categories. That's God revealing that to us. And people back then, we assume they would have understood this. But there were things that were normal. There were things that, that were abnormal or that they were anomalies. And she says that, that anomalies were declared unclean because they cross over boundaries. They cross over boundaries. So, for example, if you lived in the waters, the vast majority of things that live and swim in the waters have scales and fins. There's of some variety of fish. But there are some things that don't. The shellfish, eels, other things out there that, that it says are unclean. Again, it doesn't give us all the reasons why, but there are these broad principles, and that's just one example, that there were things that were normal and things that were abnormal. You could eat the normal. You weren't to eat the abnormal. Okay, now imagine, again, we think about this and we're like, God, it's so random. But imagine if you were the one who created it all. If you were in God's mind and you created the eel and the shrimp and the barracuda and the shark, and the goldfish, and all that, like, you created all of the species in their precision. You had reasons for doing it all. And when you declared that some of them were clean and to be eaten, and some of them were unclean and not to be eaten, you had reason. It wasn't that the unclean things were bad, because they weren't. In the beginning, God said it was all good. It's just they're different. They're different, and scholars go on and on about some of this stuff. I'm not going to get into it all tonight. But we do see that there is precision, that there is exact detail in all of this stuff. Second, the thing we see is that death is the ultimate enemy and the thing to be avoided. So the contrast between life and death, I'm going to say this twice. So if you want to take notes, say it, write it down. The contrast between life and death is at the heart of the clean and unclean laws. The contrast between life and death is at the heart of the, un, the clean and unclean laws. 
What do I mean by that? I mean that God is the, he's the source of life. He's the author of life. He's the creator of all living things. And so you could think on the, on the spectrum of that, that graph that's in your, uh, in your handout, the more holy it was, the more it reflected fullness of life, the more that it approached God himself, who's the source of life. And the further it went the other direction, the, it's not that it, that it became dead or that it became sinful. It's that it would be associated with death. And so, for example, when you get into the, the birds of the air, all of the birds that were predatory birds and that would go feed on other dead things, or even if they were carnivorous and they would go feed on other birds and be eating the blood, that was unclean because blood spilled means death. And so anything that's over there on that end is moving away from life and toward death, away from order and wholeness and toward disorder and chaos. If you've read the the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, when God starts creating everything, it talks about it and saying that he brought order out of chaos. He brought order out of disorder. And in the laws, we see that very same thing happening. There is Life and order on this end, and there is death and disorder on that end. So God is the God of life, and he's utterly opposed to things that that stink of death in any way. Okay, let's take a breath for a second. What does this mean? God is teaching his people this. In the very order of creation, in the things that have been made you can see examples of creatures who are normal and who stay consistent to their nature and who are, um, who are therefore declared clean. And it's as if God is, is looking down at his people and is saying, I want you to eat those things. I want you to partake of those things. Just as they are doing the things they ought to do, the fish that have scales and the the cows that do this certain thing, they are doing their certain thing as they are created to. I want you as my people to be and do who I've told you you are and what I'm telling you to do. He's saying, I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart, to be distinct from all the other nations of the world. Look, to say it, I'll try to be as plain as I can. The food laws were what made Israel as a nation utterly distinct. Other nations had kinds of sacrifices and stuff like that. The food laws were the things that if you saw someone observe them, you'd be like, oh, that's a Jew. Why? Because they passed on the shrimp. Or they didn't, they didn't eat the hawk that we served. Or that dude's over there munching grasshoppers. He's a Jew. Like, that's the thing. That's like they would have been wearing the the American flag on the back of their shirt. Like, I'm an American. Or more likely a Texas flag that says you're a Texan. Um, (laughs) There's a go. I see a fist bump from Jeff. The food laws were Israel's main national identity marker. God said, I want you to be different and distinct. We see this later in Leviticus 20. I got up there on the screen. It says, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. Here's what God's saying. I'm driving out that nation ahead of you. Don't associate with them because you're different from them. Be different because you are different. Eat different because you are different. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What is this for us? So I don't pretend that all of you in this room are Christians now. I know for a fact some of you are still trying to figure all this out. Um, I really applaud you for coming to a study of Leviticus because this is hard. Um, If you are a Christian, and even if you're considering it, you have to know this, that when you get to the New Testament, and when you get to Jesus, and when you get to the apostles who wrote about Jesus and, and kind of encapsulated his teaching in their letters and such, we see very explicitly that the in the New Testament, the food laws do not apply anymore to God's people. Explicitly don't. They are explicitly forbidden. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus says that it's not what goes into you that defiles you, but it's what comes out of you. And in so doing, he declared all the foods clean. He's like, look, it doesn't matter what you eat, y'all. It's about your heart and what flows out of you that makes you, that shows you to be clean or unclean. And later, um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, there's the account of Peter being told in a vision, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what's, he, what's that saying? It's in the context of him going and eating with some unclean uh, non-Jewish people. And, and God's showing up in the dream and saying, Peter, you can eat what they serve you. Even though for your whole life you thought it was unclean, you can go and eat that. It doesn't matter anymore. So what's this about? Um, was, was God in the book of Leviticus just setting up this big straw man argument? You all right? know what that is where you kind of like build up a scenario in your mind and then you stand over here and just beat it down like with your ultimate argument like, see why I'm so smart? I just did away with that. Is that what God's doing? Here's all these laws. Here's the Jesus ba- the beat down like Jesus is better and he's more awesome and these things don't matter anymore. Jesus is awesome and he's better. But there's more going on than that. Look at verse 45 um, right there on your bulletin. It says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus, God is giving all of these food laws and, and so many more that we didn't read. He's giving all of these laws to this people and saying, These are going to set you apart. But be very clear about this. Being set apart is the result of me having already saved you. Look at verse 45. I am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've already saved you. Now you're to go and be different. Your being different isn't what merits your salvation. Your holiness, your cleanness is not what gets God to look at you and say, Oh my gosh, you're clean or you're holy. 
When God tells us in the New Testament to be set apart and to pursue holiness and to follow Jesus, He's looking at us as people, if you're a Christian, who have already been redeemed by God through Jesus, and He's saying, now therefore live differently. And the human heart loves to flip those around. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you're a Christian, you love to functionally think that why is it that you feel better when you have a quiet time, when you read your Bible or when you pray? You feel better because in some small way you think that God is finally looking at you and paying attention. Finally, you have a smile because you did that thing or you came to RUF or you came to RUF again. God must really love you. No. God's saying, I, I love you because I've set my love on you. And I've redeemed you and I've saved you, if that's true of you. And he says, therefore, go and be different. The order is everything. And when when we hear Jesus' call to follow him, and when we hear God's call in our life throughout the New Testament to be holy, and we see there's lots of commandments in the New Testament too, Things we do with our sexuality and things we do with our our freedom and what we do on the weekends and and how we treat other people and how we relate to family and and how we think about our job. There There are laws about all kinds of stuff. There is an ethic in following Jesus. There absolutely is. And if you try to follow him, not only will you be different, but you will be seen as weird. And you will be hated. And people around you who aren't seeking to live that way, they will judge you. And just by you trying to mind your own business and to try to follow God in the way that you're living your life, by proximity, others will feel that and it will make them feel dirty. And it will make them feel guilty. And it has, you could be the sweetest person in the world and by just being present with them, they're going to feel that. And I need to tell you that's by intention. Way back in Leviticus, throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel, in the way that they were distinct and the different things they did, it was supposed to scream out to the world that I am loved by and I follow the God who is the God of life. And he hates anything that leads to disorder and chaos. And so he hates people who break the laws that move to a disordered society. So God hates underage drinking, y'all. As arbitrary as it may feel to us, God hates it. Because there are people in this country and in this state who said this is the way that life is going to flourish if we put these limits on that thing. God says that you have to obey your professors and you're called to be the best students because because professors are the rulers. They are the masters of that sphere called the class. And if you want it to be the best learning environment, then you can't cheat because that robs the educational experience. And God calls us, calls Christians to follow him. And when people see you following him, they're going to hate you. Your life is meant to show that you follow the God of life who loves order, not boredom, but order. There is joy and freedom in doing what God has called us to do. A number of years ago, um, Anne Lamont published a book called Grace Eventually. And Lamont was an author, um, kind of a prolific figure in American, the political scene and later the comedy scene. She's just really funny, as you're about to find out. But she was a a 20-year recovering alcoholic when she wrote this book, which means that she understands struggle, she understands addictions, um, and she understands that those things go deeper than the substances themselves. 
She talks about her relationship with food this way. Uh, I forgot to put it up on the screen, so let's just listen up. She says, all I could think to do was what every addict thinks of doing, kill the pain. I don't smoke or drink anymore. I'm too worried to gamble, too guilty to shoplift, and I've always hated clothes shopping. So what choices did that leave? I could go on a strict diet, or conversely, I could stuff myself to the rafters with fats, sugars, and carcinogens. Ding, ding, we have a winner. I got in the car and headed to Safeway for an apple fritter. A perfect fritter in the classic tradition, a frisbee-sized patty of deep-fried dough, crisp and crunchy around the edges, doughy in the center, covered with a sugar glaze. I used to eat fritters in mass quantities back when I binged and purged. Then, in early sobriety, I'd snack on them sometimes because your body craves a replacement for all of the sugar you once got in alcohol. But by the time those nights were over, I would be so lost. I couldn't follow the breadcrumbs back to the path of mental health because I'd eaten them all. So I ended up up eating junk off and on until bedtime. I can hardly describe how I felt when it was over, like a manatee alone in an aquarium. It is hard to remember that you are a cherished spiritual being when you're burping up apple fritters and Cheetos. Sometimes I think that Jesus watches my neurotic struggles and shakes his head and grips his forehead and starts tossing back mojitos. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, in the history of Safeway, it has never once run out of apple fritters, but they were out. I understood instantly that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I did not turn to the donuts, the bear claws, the Danish. I was not hungry for those. I had not been attacked by random lust for just any old sugar and petroleum product. What did I do? I drove to another supermarket. On the way over, the voice in my head said, It's not that big of a deal. Anyone would understand if you binged every so often. So I asked nicely, Now who exactly is anyone again? Anyone. I knew this was true. Even Jesus would. Although somehow I don't see him ripping open a package of hostess ding-dongs for me. But thinking of Jesus reminded me that food would not fill the holes or quiet the fear. Only love would. I hate this. She's on to something. Whether food is just the thing that you use to fuel your body for the day's work whether food is something you look at and have a love-hate relationship with, whether food controls your life, whether whether it is a means to an image. God here in this passage, among everything else, he is telling us that these laws, they weren't merely about the laws. They weren't merely about food. They weren't merely about animals. They were about your heart. And that no amount of eating the right things or avoiding the wrong things could ever fill you in the way that only God could. And that's what he's telling us. That in all of the precision, all the intricacy, God is saying, I am a holy God and I care about everything. And that means that I care about you and I care about everything about you. And you could never keep all the laws. That's why Jesus had to come. And so I sent him to be a curse, to take on the curse that you deserve for all your law breaking And he took it at the cross. He took it. He took all the punishment that that your sin and your curse deserved. And he gives you his cleanness. He gives you more than that. He gives you his holiness. He gives you access to God. He gives you the love of God that no food 
or apple fritter could ever, ever satisfy. He gives you what your heart really longs for, and that's God himself. Would you have him? He's yours through Jesus tonight. Let's pray.